Good evening. So it's been a while since we've uh, been studying Micah. Uh, I think it's probably been almost three weeks. And so before we dive into the passage that we're going to be studying tonight, I think it'll be helpful to, you know, catch us up back up to speed. And so when Pastor Caleb preached last, he was talking about the mountain of the Lord, a, a time that was talking about the end times. And he talked about the gospel, how it had the effect of bringing people in, but also how it was supposed to, we were supposed to be on mission and going out. And so as we study Micah tonight, I want us to be aware that we're still going to be talking about the end times, but we're also going to be talking about the Jews that would have been hearing this prophecy. And we're also going to be talking about ourselves. So if you've been able to kind of, uh, you know, wrangle all that, you're, you're probably doing better than me. Uh, but no, this is a beautiful passage. Uh, when I first read what I was um, assigned to preach, I, I was like, man, this is a beautiful passage. So I hope you um, think that as well. Um, so we're going to be starting in uh, verse 6 of chapter 4 of Micah and, um, and hear the word of the Lord. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain sees you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you give us uh, this passage to study tonight, and it is beautiful. It is dripping with promises of things to come. And Father, I ask that this fills us with hope as our lives may be filled with sadness and suffering. We can remember that you are a God who transforms your people. Father, I ask that you use this broken instrument to point this congregation to the straight and narrow. In Jesus' name, amen. So Micah uses the phrase, in that day. So that's a, you know, for someone building a sermon, it's like, all right, we know where we're headed, where we came from. So we're in that day, talking about the last days. And this is a good thing. It gives us a point of hope to look forward to. But as I already said, it's a, it's a tough line to navigate. Well, where is he ta- who is he talking to? And so... At times, it's gonna, you're going to want to say, well, he's just talking about the Old Testament Jews, or he's only talking about 
the, the final days. But I'd encourage you to, to hide this, these truths in your heart. And because it is sometimes hard to do that, I thought it would be good to give us a, a modern comparison of what Micah is doing. And maybe it's just because I like, um, you know, cheesy Disney uh, sports films. But I think Micah is giving a halftime speech. I think he's giving a pregame speech that is supposed to invigorate their souls. And so, you know, when the Ducks needed to be, you know, find their identity, they weren't playing like themselves at halftime. They chanted, Ducks fly together. Or when the 1980 U.S. hockey team needed to realize that not only could they skate with the Russians, but they could beat the Russians. Their coach, Herb Brooks, gave them a powerful speech saying that it was their time. The Russians' time was over and they could win this game. And lastly, from one of my favorite movies, Remember the Titans?, they were faced with on-field prejudice. And the defensive coach huddled them in together. And if you know the scene, you're, you already know what's coming. He huddled them in, looked them in the eyes, and said, we will blitz all night. And you're, so you're saying, okay, he likes, he likes sports movies. Congratulations. But I think each one of those points out three different things. The Ducks needed to be reminded of their identity. And the, the U.S. hockey team needed to, their perspective to change. And lastly, the Titans needed to be given purpose. And I think Micah gives us all three of those things. Because the Lord transforms our identity, our perspective, and our purpose. So to start off with, how does the Lord change our identity? Well, we see it very clearly in verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. We're given three identifiers, the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted. And it's, I said this passage was beautiful because it is beautiful. But at the same time, when I first read this, I was, I was instantly stung because if it was my team, I would not pick the lame. And I know that sounds terrible, but I would, I would pick the best and the brightest. If there was going to be Team Beck, it was going to, I, would, I, would, I would get all the Nobel Prize winners. I would get the fastest people. I would build a dream team. And that's not what our God does. He gathers the lame. And it's times like this that I'm so proud to be going to Pear Orchard where you all embody this verse with a disability ministry. And, it, and, and lame doesn't have to just talk about physical disability or mental disability. It's just talking about weakness. And this is so true because how often do we see throughout the Bible God using the weak, the unsuspecting, not the heroes to achieve his good? And so that's the, the first identifier, the weak. And then we, the driven away, I, I'll label them the outcasts, basically the not cool group. You know, we always want to be the insiders. We want to be, you know, the people that say, man, if I could get into that group, you know, that lunch table, then I would make it. But that, again, that's not who God uses. 
And then we get to the last verse, or the last um, identifier. Those whom I have afflicted. And the first two, we're like, okay, God uses the lame and the outcast, and then we're struck with the whom I have afflicted? And we have to chew on that for a bit. Because we don't really like thinking about our God afflicting us. We want to, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm going to have a good life and this is, this is going to be okay. It's all going to work out. And that is true. But as we come across verses like this that matter-of-factly say, whom I have afflicted, well, we have to, we have to study that. We have to ask the question, why does God afflict me or those that I love? In the foxhole, the hospital, that busy intersection, the bail bond office, when you're on your knees in front of your bed and you're brought low questioning God's love and his assurance, the suffering of saints and sinners alike are before God. He, and yet he uses affliction to chastise, humble, sanctify, and transform his people. And when I, I really wish I could just camp here on these two verses because we, we need to build our theology of suffering. And I know that's kind of like, a, oh, you know, theology of suffering. But we have a, a Christology. You know, we see Christ in the garden and all the way through. And we see a story of redemption all the way through. And we see, um, you know, a, a remnant all the way through. And we study on those things. But there's suffering starting in Genesis 3 all the way to the book of Revelation. So the same thing, we need a theology of suffering. And the reason I want to stay here, but I want to also get to the rest of the verses, is because you can't build your theology in the throes of it. If you start building a house in a, in a windstorm, in a hurricane, that's not going to go really well for you. But the Holy Spirit is strong enough, so he will sustain you. But why not start now? And so, unfortunately, I have to leave this as homework for you. But please, this is important. This is crucial. As a, as a last bit of encouragement, I want, to he, I want you to hear the Apostle Paul's word on this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our suffering is temporary. It is not going to last. But we need to be able to guide our own hearts as well as those whom we love through those trials. And now we have, to, we have seen the, the people's present identity. Lame, afflicted, outcasts. Not a pretty picture. But... We're going to build your, uh, your, your theology of suffering just a little bit. Verses 7 and 8. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. 
kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And so what do we read? We read that the lame are now a remnant. The outcasts are a strong nation. He's transforming their identity into something so much better. But again, we have to wonder, is he just talking about the Jews, his immediate audience, or is he talking about us, or is this something that won't happen until Christ returns? And I would say that he's talking a little bit about both, because Jerusalem will be rebuilt um, in the 5th century uh, after they've been demolished by Babylon in the 5th century. They'll rebuild the temple. They'll rebuild Jerusalem. As we look forward to the future with Christ returning, this truth and hope, it needs to be transformative. We must find our identity in that. And I know identity has become something of a buzzword. You know, we have identity politics. You can find your identity in your gender, your sexuality, um, so many things. And I want to ask you, do you really want your identity to be in something temporal, something man-made, something that, you know, that we want to latch onto, or do you want it to be in something eternal in Christ? To have a new identity is something that you live and breathe. It's not just a, a surface level thing. It's something that courses through you. And Micah is preaching the gospel of transformation that is found in the renewing love of Christ. Where the lame will be protected, the outcasts gathered, and the afflicted safe under the rule of Christ. And so now that we have... Uh, a little grasp on the transformation in your identity, what do you do with that? Because, like I said, identity is something that is your entire body. It's how you think about things. It's how you view things. And so that's point number two. Your, um, your perspective is transformed. And so returning to our pregame analogy the coach has just said, when you first got here, you didn't know the plays. You, didn't, you practically even knew how to play a sport. But now look at you. You can win this game. Your perspective has changed. The, en- the Well, not necessarily the enemy, but the team across from you is not that strong compared to you. You can do this. Once your identity has changed, your perspective has changed as well. And so, coming from verses 9 and 10. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. Like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so the same way that we started with in that day, we now have the beginning word of now. So Micah is using the future identity, how you will be transformed, and now he's looking back at his immediate audience and saying now. What you see before you is not good. Because now you get a bit of a history lesson. It wasn't all, you know, rainbows and butterflies before them. In fact, it was utter destruction. Think an absolute carnage. The Assyrians had already made their way through Samaria, that's the the northern kingdom, and they were on their way to Jerusalem. 
And Micah knew this. The people of Jerusalem knew this. They knew the impending doom before them. And just to give you a little perspective, to really make it real, Hosea talks about the Assyrian army and how depraved they were. And Hosea 13, 16 says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This was the enemy that was grinding their way through the promised land, headed their way towards Jerusalem. When I say it wasn't pretty, I mean it was not pretty. This was a fierce army that Jerusalem stood no chance against. To make it even more real for you, the Assyrians had not only no dignity on on life, but on their actual humans that they were seeing, that they were capturing. There's reliefs of King Sennacherib bringing his prisoner of wars back in a net. And you say, that's weird. You need a pretty, pretty big net for all those people. But it was figurative because they would put fish hooks through the jaw of their people and drag them back. That's the people, the people of God, we're about to encounter. And I don't mean to gross you out, but I want this to be real for you all. I want you to be able to picture the army that is approaching. As Micah is saying, I'm transforming your identity, and now I'm trying to transform your perspective. This is why. And Micah asks a jabbing rhetorical question to show the Israelites where they're placing their faith in the kingship. They were content saying, well, we've got the, the line of David that will never end. Therefore, we're fine. They were putting their hopes, their dreams, their identity in that. And we're no stranger to this feeling because we often sometimes throw our own identity into politics. You know, if we just had the majority, then everything would be all right. We're transformed in our identity and now perspective. And following this rebuke, Micah provides a vivid imagery to demonstrate the anguish that is being felt in the city. He, he likens it to a woman in labor. You know, you don't just start having a baby. The contractions build. The pressure builds. The pain builds. And he's saying, writhe and groan like a woman in labor. I promise you it gets better. And so this army is making their way down. And if you're awake or just really smart, you already see, wait, there's something that doesn't add up. He keeps mentioning the Assyrian army, and yet the text says Babylon. Well, the angel of the Lord wipes out 185,000 Assyrians and sends King Sennacherib packing. And you think, whoa, what a miracle. I'm sure they've changed. I'm sure they, you know, that is what corrected their, you know, corrected, you know, threw out all the idols. They, you know, flipped the switch. Now they're very faithful. 
Unfortunately, we know better. At bottom, 135 years, a lifetime, two lifetimes, of not being conquered. But then the Lord did use Babylon to conquer Jerusalem. And so how is this a transformation? You know, it didn't really seem to change their perspective. They, didn't, they just went right back to going after idols. Well, the same way that you don't change your own identity, God changes your identity. God changes your perspective, too. To continue the, the sports analogy, and I'm, I'm really sorry if you don't like sports. <laughs> um, if someone told you the score of the LSU-Alabama game last night, you'd watch that, you know, before you watch the game, you'd watch that game completely different. You'd know LSU somehow makes it out alive. Or with a book or a movie, those spoilers. There's a reason why we get angry when people spoil things. We want to be held in that suspense. The same way that our perspective is godly. Because God provides perspective by telling us this is what happens. And we see it clearly in verses 11 and 12. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. It's in these verses that we see Micah speak to their current situation with the dread approaching. And he's not allowing them to stay in their own perspective, only looking at the enemy approaching. He's saying, no, God has a plan. And even though you will be conquered, and your children and their children and many generations after them will live in captivity, God is going to redeem you and this people back to him. And so this is where it becomes very applicable to our own lives because Brothers and sisters, we know how this ends. We know Christ returns, sin is vanquished, and we have hope in that, or at least we should. We should have a godly perspective in knowing how it ends. And yet sometimes I feel like we don't think about that. We don't allow ourselves to have godly perspective because we're focused on the here and now. Our identity is transformed by the Lord. Our perspective is transformed by the Lord. And like every good speech, there's a call to action. Micah ends with a final transformation, a transformation of purpose. You know, if a coach just, you know, gives this hoorah speech and then just says, well, you know, play if you want to. What's the point of that? No, you want to charge out on the field. You want to have purpose. And Micah gives it here in verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And so using the imagery of the time, the Lord is saying, have confidence you are my army. You will thresh these people. And that's a, that's a weird phrase. Thresh people. But I want us to hold on to that. Because I, I don't think this ap applies to the Jews. 
of the Old Testament. I think it applies to us. Both right now and in the coming days, in the, in the final days. I think Micah is speaking specifically to us. The daughter of Zion is the church. The spiritual descendants of God's chosen people. And he's given this command to you. And you're probably wondering, how are we to thresh somebody? And I don't, I don't get why we need iron horns or bronze hooves. This sounds very counter to what we know and see. But what we do know is it has to be harmonious with the New Testament, with what Christ has commanded us. And Christ was no stranger to the imagery of threshing. In fact, he used it several times to talk about the division between unbelievers and believers. Using the gospel to separate. And we know the gospel is welcoming. In fact, we want it to be welcoming. And yet it's wholly exclusive. It is a, something that divides between unbelievers and believers. Your purpose is to share the gospel and allow it to comfort believers and convict unbelievers alike. There's nothing in Scripture that says we need our, our country to be run only by Christians. No, we need to let the gospel be what threshes this country and world. And so the second point of application is the same way the Lord promised military confidence with, with iron, thorn, or iron horns and bronze hooves. He's giving you confidence. We are to be confident in what we are proclaiming. The gospel is sturdier than any substance and more illuminating than any other earthly wisdom. Be confident as you're sharing the gospel. And lastly, I think most poignantly, it's talking about wealth and treasures devoted to the Lord. And we know God can have any amount of money should you want any money, or gold or diamonds. What is wealth to the Lord? What is worth enough that he would sacrifice anything? Souls. Our souls are worth that. Souls to him are the, is the most, most worthwhile and amount of wealth that we could ever give to the Lord. And I think sometimes we miss that. I think sometimes we miss that our neighbor's souls or our coworker's souls are so valuable, are a tremendous wealth dedicated to the Lord, and we need to be confident in sharing them the gospel. As we ride into our jobs, our schools, on the soccer fields, the grocery stores, as we're transformed by the renewed purpose of sharing the gospel. And so Micah has given us a message of transformation. 
transforming your identity from afflicted to restored, from sinner to saint, transforming your perspective from only being aware of this life to something eternal, and then transforming your purpose to being focused on yourself as opposed to being focused on sharing the gospel. The Lord does not want us aimless in this life with dead faith. He desires us to be transformed by the gospel, that we pursue others with good news. And this, I'm sure, sounds all great and good. You know what I mean? Who doesn't want a transformed life? And if you're sitting here saying, you know, Josh, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard this before, and I just don't see much change. I don't see the transformation that you're talking about. Well, I want to leave you with one last bit of encouragement. That who was greater than Christ? The Holy Spirit. Christ said, I'm going to give you the helper. And who is that helper but the spirit in which sustained Christ on the cross and in the desert during temptations? That is who's dwelling inside of you. And so when you think about your walk, whether you're suffering, whether you're struggling to see godly perspective, or you think you don't have purpose in this life, remember that you have the Spirit within you. And allow that to be what you plead to each and every day. And as we talked about, it's not going to always be rainbows and butterflies. There will be times of suffering. And there will be times where what's going on before you draws all your attention. But I pray that we do not lose sight of the transformation happening inside of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you've given us this text to give hope to those of the original hearers and to the millions of people that have read this verse. And Father, we know that you are the sure and steadfast anchor that we are to have hope. And Father, I ask that you use this text to continue to hold us steadfast, to continue to encourage us in times of struggling and need. Father, I just ask that you continue to work in all of our lives to transform our identity, perspective, and purpose. In Christ's name I pray, amen.